you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. The night was a cold one in New York City. The temperature was barely above freezing, with a cold rain falling. Patrolman William Masterson was standing at the corner of the Bowery and Roosevelt Street, a few blocks south of New York's infamous Five Point Slum. At approximately 2.30 early on the morning of January 18, 1892. The corner no longer exists as such but the current intersection of St. James Place and Madison Street is approximately the same location. As Masterson stood surveying the passers-by in the night, his attention was drawn by a man who crossed the street towards him. The man was middle-aged and wore a white handkerchief around his neck. As the man passed the police officer, he leaned forward and stared with narrow eyes at Masterson, and then continued on. The police had received several descriptions of a man who had been attacking nighttime travelers in the neighborhood. Officer Masterson thought this man resembled that suspect just a bit and followed him with his eyes. Moments later, another man stumbled past the officer, evidently extremely drunk. The drunk walked up behind the first man and passed him. Beginning to become more suspicious, Masterson followed the two men. They both began a conversation as they walked along, but at some point, the drunk seemed to have become angry with the man with the white handkerchief and stumbled away from him. Having rounded the corner of Madison Street and James Street, the first man hurried up toward the drunk once more. He whispered something in the drunk man's ear, something which made him shrink back and stare at the other for a moment. In that moment, the man with the white handkerchief drew a straight razor and slashed the drunk man's throat. Blood splashed on the sidewalk in front of 86 James Street as Officer Masterson rushed forward and ran after the slasher. He yelled to several other policemen who were nearby, and three other officers named Cardi, McCrary, and Kiernan ran over to check on the drunk and to aid Masterson in his pursuit of the fugitive. He was captured after a brief chase, and the wounded victim was sent to Chambers Street Hospital. At the former police station, Dr. J.S.J. Manning examined the man. He found that he had an extremely deep wound across his throat in a semicircle, a wound which severed his windpipe and jugular. Despite all appearances, however, he did not believe the wound was fatal and that the man, whose name was William Mueller, would make a recovery. 
The slasher was remanded to the tombs, pending the result of Mueller's injuries. It was found that his name was Henry G. Dowd. The gray-eyed and brown-haired man stood 5 foot 8 inches and looked to be approaching middle age. He was heavily scarred. He denied having attacked Mueller, despite having been plainly seen doing it, but also made contradictory statements that it had been in self-defense. He later was to deny having made even that statement. As said earlier, at the time he was seen assaulting William Mueller and arrested by Officer Masterson, police were investigating a series of attacks that had taken place in the same neighborhood in New York since late December 1891. The first attack, made on December 29th, was 34-year-old James Heflin, slashed on Bayard Street. Heflin's throat appeared to have been slashed from behind. Next was George Stevens, found on January 3rd near Catherine Ferry, followed by John Clark the very next night. A sailor named Lewis Lawson had his face slashed on Pike's slip on the night of January 8th, and finally a Swedish man named Edward Christensen on January 10th. All of these men survived the slashings. The next one wasn't so lucky, however. It was raining lightly on the morning of January 15th, when patrolman Samuel Hall was walking along Christie Street. In front of a stable at number 39, he found a man lying on the ground. Walking over to the outstretched man, he discovered that the man's throat had been cut deeply. Another cut was to be seen in his brown derby hat. He was clearly dead. The man looked to be approximately 30 years of age, had brown hair and mustache, and was dressed somewhat shabbily. In the pockets of the dead man, there were a number of letters from various people. Two were from an E.A. Clayton, a James King, and an Edward O'Meara, all referring to the book trade. From allusions within these letters, it was determined that the dead man, whoever he was, had worked as a salesman for Charles Scribner's son's publishers. Another was from a Baltimore Justice of the Peace named Frank DeSales Benzinger, who scolded the man for not having informed his sister of his movements and informing him that another of his sisters lived in Patterson, New Jersey. The rain had turned to a light snow by the time the other officers arrived on the scene and the body of the dead man was removed. Though the police searched, they found no trace of the knife or razor used to make the wound. The body removed to the nearest police station, the investigation into the identity of the dead man began. Calling at all boarding houses in the vicinity, they eventually spoke to Charles Bersetti, the proprietor of the Germania boarding house at 81 Bowery. He identified the dead man as a John Chester, who had been staying there for three days. When other boarders were questioned, they found one named James King, the same man who had sent one of the letters. He told them that those staying under the name Chester, the dead man had actually been a John Carson. He had formerly been a lawyer in Baltimore. He was also able to confirm that he had two sisters and that the Frank Benzinger who had written one of the letters was his brother-in-law. A few years ago, he said, Carson had lost nearly all of his money and quickly spiraled into alcoholism. Both King and another Germania boarder named Noyes said that though Carson was often, nearly always, drunk, he was not a violent man. It was said that police were, bizarrely, at first investigating the death as a suicide. 
Now, there is, of course, a pattern of deaths being labeled as suicides when they're obviously not, but on consideration, I actually wonder whether that was actually the case here. There was an increased police presence at the time that Mueller would have been slashed, after all, and it seems unbelievable that Carson's murder would not have been connected with the five prior attacks. I wonder if it was, rather, simply a story that was put out to the press so as not to spook the killer, especially since some of the news stories following the Dowd arrest suggest that it was never thought of as anything but a homicide. The identity of the dead man established, now on to Dowd himself. For the capture of the slasher, Officer Masterson was made a roundsman, meaning that the technically still patrolman himself was put in command of other patrolmen. He was also transferred to a less, um, eventful beat than the dangerous section of the Lower East Side to which he had been assigned. Unceremoniously referred to in the press as, quote, a family of bums and cranks, Patrick M. and Sarah E. Dowd had emigrated to the United States from Liverpool, England, arriving in the 1870s. They brought with them their three children, William, John, and Henry. The family originally settled in Brooklyn. According to E.A. White, Dowd's guardian appointed by a wealthy uncle, Henry had always been troubled. In June of 1872, he had been committed to the Kings County Hospital at Flatbush. He was released in September of that year, but by December of 1873, had been recommitted. He escaped in June of the next year, and his whereabouts for several years were unknown. In 1881, he was arrested for grand larceny, and sentenced to five years in Sing Sing Prison. He served only two, however. It is alleged that he slashed the throat of a John J. Flynn in 1887, and was arrested for this crime. Once again, he was released after six months. John J. Flynn was the owner of a Washington Street bar. On the 4th of July, 1887, some kids threw firecrackers into his establishment, and Flynn ran out the door and threatened a group of children out front of a candy store across the street, who were not, by the way, the ones who threw the firecrackers. But more firecrackers were thrown, and an enraged Flynn ran back outside with a revolver and fired into the group of kids several times. Three children were wounded, and Flynn was arrested. He was slashed four days later, and were it not for the fact that Dowd was arrested, I would wonder whether it was some rep retribution for this shooting. But back to Dowd, his whereabouts from 1888 to 1891 are unknown. On August 29, 1891, Dowd was arrested for punching a man named Charles Vaughn on Roosevelt Street. He was sent to Ward's Island, but was released shortly thereafter. At the time of his arrest for slashing William Mueller, he was boarding at 54 Chambers Street. Mrs. Maggie Brady who ran the boarding house where he was staying, said he often would sit in his window with a loaded forty-four revolver and fire it into the street until, quote, he was finally persuaded to desist from this particular sport. Also spoken to was his brother, John J. Dowd. John may or may not have lived with his brother. Reports are unclear. John's opinion of his brother, however, is much less unclear. He said, quote, he is a bad man and does not believe that there is a God. He says that he doesn't believe that there is a heaven or a hell. When I go to his room to see him and pray for him, he curses me. He says he doesn't want anyone praying around him, and he threatened to kick me out if I don't let him alone. 
He is a bad man and a sinner. John claimed he knew nothing of the slashing attacks his brother was responsible for. Apparently, someone had said to him, So you're one of those religious maniacs. To which John replied, Well, I suppose I am. Based apparently solely on the above statement, which really seems to me to have been an ironic statement, more confirming that he was a religious man rather than that he was religious to an insane extent, his supposed lunacy was seized upon by the press. John himself was arrested and sent to Bellevue for evaluation of his mental state. He was found to be sane. Henry G. Dowd, meanwhile, had made more contradictory statements to Inspector Thomas Burns and Captain William McLaughlin, once again stating that he attacked Mueller only in self-defense and that Mueller had attacked him first, although to be fair, his definition of attack seems to have been that the drunken Mueller stumbled into him. When asked why he killed John Carson, one of the statements seeming to imply that the murder was never seriously thought of as a suicide, Dowd replied, I cut him because I thought he was a damned Dutchman. I hate Dutchmen, and I never see one who looks like that but what I want to kill him. I can't help it. He then fell silent. E.A. White had confirmed that Dowd had long had a hatred of Germans, which sprang from a delusion that a German man had raped his mother. This, however, White said to the best of his knowledge, had never actually taken place. Once Dowd's arrest and the neighborhood in which it had taken place became public knowledge, some questioned whether he had been responsible for the infamous murder of Carrie Brown, also known as Old Shakespeare, which had taken place in 1891, and which was popularly imagined to be the work of Jack the Ripper come across the ocean to New York. The East River Hotel, where that murder had taken place, was only a few blocks east of the street stalked by Dowd. In fact, Some extrapolated from this and concluded that Henry G. Dowd was the Ripper himself. This rumor was soon dropped, however. So on January 28th, the same day that his brother John was declared sane, Henry G. Dowd was recalled before Judge Fitzgerald to answer for the assault on William Mueller. Maurice Meyer handled Dowd's defense, and Assistant District Attorney Gunning Bedford made the state's case. After hearing only a handful of witnesses, the trial concluded the next day. The jury deliberated for two hours, finding Dowd insane. He was sentenced to the state hospital for the criminally insane at Auburn. When that facility closed the next year, he was transferred to Matiawan State Hospital for the criminally insane, and he remained at that facility for the rest of his life. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.